Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman, Oklahoma. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 945 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. And the goal of this series is to understand the core elements of the gospel message, okay? Understand the core elements of God's gospel message. So over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about these things. Number one, who is God? Number two, sin, repentance, and belief. Number three, grace and mercy. And number four, Jesus as Lord. Understanding these four things will help us uh, go deeper in understanding the depth and the beauty of God's grace, his love for us, and who he is, okay? So this morning, we're going to be answering the question, who is God? So thank you for joining us for the next three hours. Uh, it'll be a great time, exhausting. No, no, we're not doing that. But we are going to be looking at a key passage in Acts 17 in which Paul talks about who God is. And this is a complex topic, I know it is, but I want to focus specifically on the characteristics of God as it relates to his gospel message, okay? So these are going to be things in which Paul, communicating with a secular group of people, tries to help them understand who God is so that they can understand the message of salvation, okay? So that's what I'm going to be looking at today. But before we begin, I think it's important to identify a problem or identify why we should even talk about who is God. And the reason is because there are so many misconceptions about God. And oftentimes, people can mistakenly worship the God of their imagination rather than the God who actually is. Would you rather worship the God that you come up with in your own head or the God who he actually is? For me personally, I would rather worship a God who actually is, the God of truth, the God who reveals himself generally through his creation, but especially through the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Scriptures. So some of the mistaken, uh, mistaken misconceptions that we have about God, number one, maybe we think about God as maybe a cosmic police officer. And this is kind of the karma view of God in which we think that everything that we do, God is looking for how he can punish us. Or we're looking for ways in which God might uh, see where we mess up and look, to, look to, to make things right. And we kind of view it as this karma type situation, right? What comes around goes around. And it's kind of this malevolent view of God that he is just there to punish, or the second misconception maybe is that God is like a grandfather, okay? God is like a grandfather where he just wants our best. He just wants us to be happy, that he's not going to do anything to uh, subvert our happiness or the things that we want. He would never do anything to take away our happiness. And these are all different elements on the flip side in which we can misunderstand who God actually is. So how do we know God? Number one is we can see him in creation. God has revealed us himself generally in creation. We see that in Romans 28 through 30. He talks about how it's plain to man that he's made himself available to be understood in creation. But the second is a more unique way in that he has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ, the person of who he is. And secondly, he's revealed himself in the scriptures. 
So my goal today is to see that God is knowable, that he is someone who we can understand. He is not this far off God that is unknowable, that is unsearchable, that, that doesn't want anything to do with us, but he is a personal God, a God who has revealed himself to us for the purpose that we might actually know and worship him. So we will see that today our response to God depends on what we believe about God. Our response to God depends on what we believe about God. And we're going to see that through these four things uh, that Paul talks about in our response to God. So God is creator and we should revere, revere him. Number two, God is provider and we should thank him. God is ruler and we should trust him. And God is savior and we should praise him. And through these truths, we will see that because God is great, good, sovereign, and gracious, then we should revere, thank, trust, and praise him. A.W. Tozer, he's a theologian who wrote The Knowledge of the Holy, which talks about all these characteristics about God. He says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Would you guys agree? What, we, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But the quote often stops there. It continues and it says this. Listen in, focus here. Worship is pure or base, meaning improper or dishonorable, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous, I don't know what that word means, but I looked it up. It means important, okay? The most important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. What we think about God affects every aspect of our relationship with him. If we believe that he is an unknowable, unsearchable God, then we likely will not seek to know him. If we think he is a malevolent uh, God who just seeks to punish him, then we will live in this fear and not seek to know him in a personal way. Our thoughts about God are vital to how we respond to him. So let's begin today with what Paul talked about to the Greeks in Acts 17. And just a little background on this passage. Uh, he encounters these Greeks and he sees an idol worship stand that says, worship to an unknown God. This is an idol setup in which these Greeks, in fear of missing any of the gods, puts this idol to an unknown God. And Paul, who is trained in Greek thought and Greek language and Greek rhetoric, uh, does not approach them with the Holy Jewish scriptures and says, look at all these things about Jesus and God. But instead, he uses their context and understands that God is so true and so knowable and so observable that he doesn't even have to approach the scriptures to reveal to them that God is here, that God is knowable and that he is relevant even in this secular world. Okay, so Paul... At this point in the book of Acts, he is on his way delivering the message from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Now, the Jerusalem Council was this linchpin moment in church history in which the church in Jerusalem made a pronouncement. You did not have to become a Jew to become a part of God's family. This was the first time in history that you didn't have to become circumcised or uh, start practicing all of the Jewish law to become a part of God's family. 
And instead, they made a pronouncement in Acts 15, 19, that they should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So Paul, with this in mind, is approaching these Greeks in the middle of Athens, in this middle of secular uh, philosophical thought, with this message in mind of not making it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God by doing it in this way. So let's read it together. We'll read the whole passage, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. Starting in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So in verse 24, Paul helps them see that this unknown God, idol, reveals what they know to be true in their their heart. So it says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. So here Paul is echoing a truth that is relevant all throughout Scripture and something that is testified throughout the Old Testament, and that is the reality that God is creator. God is creator. He is not something that is built by human hands like this idol was, but instead he is uncreated. He existed before time. He is creator. He is eternal and exists before the creation of everything. And this is something that we see in the creation narrative, right? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything. But number two, there's something that's, I think, interesting and something we need to point out is that God created humanity in a unique way. So yes, God created everything, but he did something unique when he created humans. And what do you do? In Genesis 127, it says God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God created you on purpose with a purpose, to bear his image. And what that means is that your value is, is predicated not on the things that you do or your abilities or your talents or how attractive you are or how skilled you are, but it's based solely on the fact that you are made in the image of God. That creates so much equality between all of us. And the Greeks, this is something that they needed to hear, that God had created all of them, okay? And they, had, and they were created through one man. And this is important because the Greeks thought themselves better than every other person. They thought they were so much smarter. They thought they were so much more elite. And sometimes we can be in the same boat. But God created us in his image. That means that God created us with value. There's nothing we can do that make us value, but it's solely based on the fact that God created us in his image. And then the third point that I want to indicate from God as creator is that he created everything initially to be very good. 
And in your discussion tables, you'll see what happens to this goodness. But God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So in the beginning, things were not only created by God, but God created us in his image, and he created everything good, even us. We were good at one point. And there's many misconceptions about humanity out there, whether we're just animals just following our biological instincts, or we're just machines going down this predetermined path. But one thing that we can know, if God has created us, he's created us in his image, and he intended us to be good, then God created us with the purpose to bring him glory and honor. Okay, And so there's something that comes with being created in God's image is that we are not mere creations to do whatever we're desiring to do, but instead we are to respond to God in the reality that he is creator. And that's, that's really the fact that I want to hit home is because God is creator, what should our response be? Well, if he's creator, that means that he is pretty great, right? That he's pretty powerful. And if he had the ability to make everything that we see, then that should move us to, to revere him. That should move us to fear him. Someone who is so great and so powerful, it's not a relationship that's marked by just this casualness, right? But if he is creator, if he is God of the universe, then treating him as such is an integral part of being a Christian. But not only is God creator, not only is he creator of everything, but he is also provider, which should lead to an attitude of thankfulness, okay? And that's what Paul continues in verse 25. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself give, gives everyone life and breath and everything else. I think this is really important, especially in the United States of America, where we are so, we emphasize this hard work, right? We emphasize this feeling of being able to provide for ourselves, maybe even providing for our family, getting a career, making money, uh, being able to do all these things based on our skills, our talents, and our abilities. But here, Paul is indicating that we are not our own. We did not create ourselves. And oftentimes, we can treat ourselves as if we are our own God. Everything exists for the purpose of whatever I want. But here's the reality. We don't exist without God. We see this play throughout all of Scripture, okay? We see it in Psalm 147.8. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes the grass grow on the hills. Matthew 6, it talks about this. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So it's not this idea uh, of provision in which we are providing everything on our own, but there is an origin point, right? If God is creator, that means he is also provider. The very fact that we can even do work is because God created the idea of work. The even, even the idea of being able to even hunt our food or be able to purchase the food. God had to create that food at some point, right? And so if God is the ultimate provider, then that should lead us to a serious attitude of gratitude for our providers. So far, we have talked about how God is creator and should be revered, revered and how he's provider and how he should be thanked. So we've covered his greatness and his goodness so far. And next, I want to talk about his sovereignty 
and his graciousness, okay? And uh, believe it or not, there is actually no debate in Christianity that God is sovereign, okay? If you look across the scope of all Protestant denominations, what you'll notice is every Christian testifies that God is sovereign. And when I mean that, I mean that God has the power, wisdom, and authority to do anything he chooses within his creation. Now, the debate comes, what is the relationship with God's sovereignty and human freedom? And I'm not going to create like a debate forum this morning because I think that is not really fruitful for what we're trying to determine because we are trying to determine what is God's role in salvation for us. What does it mean to understand God's sovereignty in the context of our salvation? But I think there are two main tenets or two main ideas that we have to maintain if the gospel is to remain true, which it is a true message, and that is God is absolutely sovereign, but that doesn't reduce human responsibility. So he is in control, but we are still responsible for our actions. And second, humans are responsible creatures, but their freedom doesn't diminish God's sovereignty. So within God's sovereignty, he gives us free will, but that cannot thwart God's plan, God's will, okay? So let's look at Paul and how he describes God's rule in verses 26 through 29. This is what he says. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. So let's focus on verse 26 for a moment. It says, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. So there's two observations I really want to hit home, is that through Adam, God created every person. So every person that has ever walked this earth, every person is dependent on their ancestor and Adam being created, okay? So it's up to God's will and God's sovereignty that he has allowed this multi-generational humanity, okay? So that's number one. And number two is that he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. So what we talked about God's sovereignty is nothing can thwart God's plan. Nothing can change God's plan. So he is so sovereign that nothing that has ever happened happened outside of his will. Now, we don't always understand why things happen. We don't always understand, but we know that in the fullness of time, God will bring redemption to all things. God will make all things right, okay? But he is so sovereign that we have to realize that we don't determine our own destiny. We aren't these hyper free agents in which we are able to do anything that we want because it is in the context and the frame of reference that is up to God that allows us to do those things, okay? God is so in control that he allows us to do whatever choices that we make, okay? So we don't determine our own destiny. Anything we do, God has allowed to happen. Now, God, now Paul continues in verse 27. He explains why. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. And so what we see in this verse is that God did this. Why? So that we would seek him, okay? 
So God is revealing his sovereignty to all of these people for the purpose that he would be noble. And this is an important characteristic about God, is that God revealing his sovereignty to people shows that he is a personal God, that he is a personal God. He is not this unknowable, unsearchable, unfindable God, but he is a God that is noble. He is so noble that he has revealed himself to all people so that all people are without excuse in his creation. That's what it says in Romans 1. And so when Paul is saying this, what is he really trying to communicate? Well, he marked out their appointed times in verse 26 so that people would seek him and perhaps would reach out for him and find him. God is not just ruler and sovereign, but he is also a personal God. And he's available and he's not far. Now, verse 28 might be a little confusing. I want to explain it briefly. You see these little quotes. He's not quoting what often in our New Testament, if there's quotes, typically quoting Old Testament. Here he's quoting some Greek philosophers. And he does that because these truths that these Greeks have observed is actually a partial truth of what is actually uh, revealed by God. Okay, so he's, he's quoting these things and then he transitions into verse 29 and he says in verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. So continuing that thought from verse 28, we see this repeated truth. God created us. We are from him, his offspring made in him is in him in his image. And so really Paul is trying to communicate. It's all derived from this experience of them worshiping this unknown God idol, right? And so he's basically saying idolatry makes no sense because an idol is something that is made with human hands that is supposed to re, uh, represent the one who created those things in which we're making it out of. It makes no sense, right? God is, we are God's offspring. God is not an offspring of us. We can't do anything that we create that would do him justice, okay? So only the creator deserves worship. Not an image, not an idol, not anything depicted to indicate who God is, only God alone. And then it also indicates that God is spirit here, right? God is spirit. He's not this created item or this observable uh, thing in creation. He is spirit. So all of this to say, what is Paul saying in this large argument in verses 26 through 29? He's saying that God is ruler. God is over all. God sits on the throne. He is the Lord, okay? Nothing happens out of his control. We see this in Job 42, verses two, verse 2, which if you read Job, it's amazing that he says this, okay? It says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of God can be thwarted. And you might be thinking, Kevin, okay, that, that sounds pretty and nice, but from what I see in this world, I just don't see how that could be. I just don't see how this is possible. Well, on the one hand, yes, God, uh, you know, there's all these good things that are a part of God's will. But on the other hand, the opposition that we experience or the feeling of tension that we experience is, what about those bad things? What about those things that just, those can't be from a good God? Well, I want to I encourage us, friends, is that those experiences or those situations don't determine whether God is good or not. What determines God is good or not 
is his character, who he actually is. And that shows up in how he interacts with us, how he shows himself to us. And in those bad experiences, we can hold on to the hope of who God is, that in dis despite what I'm experiencing right now, despite what I'm going through right now, I know that God is still good. And we'll talk about in a moment how we can know that for sure. But nothing, even those bad experiences, is outside of the scope of God's will. See, and I want to I wanna hit that home with an example. The betrayal, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God in flesh. Arguably, in the moment, the disciples thought, how God could you let this happen? But here's the cool thing about God. Throughout the story of Scripture, we see a message of redemption that even the most broken circumstances, even the hardest circumstances, God has a habit of redeeming. God has a habit of making those things that seem so hopeless and so impossible into something that brings him glory and honor. And though we may not understand or even see it on this side of heaven, one thing that we can know is that because of God's example of love to us, that he is extended out to us through the person of Jesus Christ, we can know that even in the midst of those hard things, he is sovereign over all in that he will make things right one day. He will make things right one day. So if this is true, how should we respond? Well, we've determined that God is great, that God is good, and that he's sovereign. And if all three of those things is true, then friends, we can trust God. If God is great, if God is good, and God is sovereign, then we can trust God. God is ruler and we should trust him. If God perishing on a cross can be turned for good, then you can trust God even on your darkest day. Lastly, we see a kind of transition into this, is that God the Son, Jesus Christ, is Savior. So Paul ends his argument in verses 30 to 31. He says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul, after making his argument about who God is, transitions to the present reality. He transitions to the present reality that we best know God through the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the corresponding point between, the, uh, between humanity and the divine. We can look at Jesus Christ and know God. How big of a blessing is it that God gave us his son, Jesus Christ, so that we would know, know him? One thing that you have to know about Jesus Christ is that he was 100% God and 100% man. And we worship a triune God, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. They are one in essence, three in persons. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God, one God in essence, represented in three persons, okay? The God, God the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit and vice versa, okay? But they are all God. And so this is why in John 1, when in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and the Word was with God, the reason that John calls Jesus the Word is that word, the Word, means revelation. So if Jesus is the revelation, what is he the revelation of? He's the revelation of God. We can know God because of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2 says that. 
You know, Paul's talking about there's this greater, clear revelation. This is what's indicated in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken us by whom? His son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. So there's this great, we're living in a period that is a blessing compared to other periods where we know God not through just the prophets and not just through the scriptures, but through the person of Jesus Christ, God in flesh. And so because of that, we're held to a greater responsibility that it's not just this, my interpretation of who God is, but that God actually revealed himself in the flesh. Now, verse 31, it transitions. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So God is judge. He is perfectly just. That's what we're seeing here. And who will be the person to judge? Well, it seems to be Jesus Christ. Now, why mention Jesus Christ as someone who has been raised from the dead? I think that's a really interesting thing that Paul brings up. And I think it's to indicate that this is the God-man. This is the one who proved his deity by defeating and conquering death. So in this moment, Paul ends his argument, and we're left with a question. How will we be judged? What do you mean that God is just and there is going to be judgment? What does that mean for me? Well, Romans 4 describes an account. And it describes an account that in our natural state, we have Adam's righteousness. And if you know anything, if you read that Genesis 3 account, you know that Adam screwed up, okay? And he was declared sinful because he disobeyed God. And our natural state is one of sinfulness. If you've ever thought, if you've ever said or done anything that disobeys God, you are sinful. Romans 3.23 says that we've all sinned. Romans 6.23, that what we have earned, the wage of our sin, is eternal separation from God. Now, you might be thinking, Kevin, I thought this was all about the good news. What are you telling me the bad news for? And we have to know that there's bad news before we can hear the good news, right? Because the bad news is this. What we deserve is eternal separation from God. You have never met a good person. If you were to ask yourself, am I a good person? According to God's standard of perfection, God's standard of holiness, none of us would be considered good. And because of that, we can do nothing to earn our salvation, nothing to earn our place in heaven. In fact, we need someone else's righteousness given to our account, placed in our account. And that's where the cross comes in. That's where Jesus Christ comes in. God is rich in mercy. Not only is he a God who is creator, who is provider, who is ruler, but he is also a gracious God who provided a savior. Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life. Jesus Christ, who lived a life that we could never live, chose to willingly die on a cross in our place as our substitute so that anyone who would believe in him would have eternal life and be saved from their sin in the current reality and the future reality. That is the good news, friend. friends, is that we are not stuck in our place of wrath but we are allowed an opportunity to follow Jesus. And 1 Peter 2, 22 through 25 describes this hope. Jesus, he committed no sin, 
and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The hope is that God provided a savior, a savior that saves us from what we've earned, which is eternal death and separation from him. But God, the son, is savior and should be praised. So today we've looked at how Paul is described to the Greek thinkers who God is, that he is creator, that he is provider, that he is ruler, and finally that he has provided a savior in Jesus Christ. So I'll end with what A.W. Tozer once said about God. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous, important fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And I also want to end with what is the good news? Definition from Tim Keller says this. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin and a fellowship with him, and then restores the creation which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. This is the good news, friends, and this is a God who provided a way for us to know him.